0: This is David McCall, host of the QTS Experience podcast. When you were 15, were you thinking about helping the world? Not in a, I'll buy some merch from that celebrity or cause, and maybe a nickel will go to UNICEF or world peace. I mean, I am literally changing the trajectory of people's lives. I sure wasn't. I don't know if anybody that I knew would have started something like that, but Maggie Grout did. Maggie was 15 when she went to her parents to figure out how she could take her talent and combine that with technology and like-minded people and change the lives of those that are the most vulnerable. Maggie's now the CEO of Thinking Huts. Her company uses 3D printing to build sustainable classrooms and buildings around the world. But this is more than a cool tech story or a prodigy making an impact. It's a story of a woman who's already overcome amazing personal obstacles and is on a mission to help human beings flourish. So please join us for this incredible conversation on the next QTS Experience. The most valuable commodity on earth today is data. How we make it, use it, move it, and protect it. My name's David McCall. Join me today for the QTS Experience. Three, two, one. Maggie, welcome to the QTS Experience.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: My great pleasure. Well, before we dive into the details, I have to ask you, we were talking off camera um, that you're in Iowa. I assume you're there of your own free will that nobody forced you to go to Iowa. Is that true?
1: Yes, it's true. I'm here visiting my parents, um, but I can get what you're where you're coming from there. There's <laughs> lots of cornfields, maybe not the most things to do.
0: <laughs> when I was a kid, my parents um, relocated right after World War II. Both of my grandparents, one set was from Iowa, the other was from Ohio, and they relocated to the San Francisco Bay Area. My parents grew up in Santa Clara, probably from the early 50s on. But Every summer, we spent through my entire, until I left home life, in one of two places, guaranteed, even if it was for a few days, California and Iowa. My great-grandfather or great-great-grandfather was one of the general contractors that helped build most of Davenport, Iowa. So some of the perks were I got to see some of the original McDonald's. It was a cool, as you know, it's a cool little town, the, those little Midwest towns in Iowa and Illinois. They were so, especially back then, so charming and so pretty. But have you ever been to Iowa during Thanksgiving time? I have not. (laughs) I'm going to warn you now. And if your parents tell you something different, they don't love you as much as you think they do. Because (laughs) there's a thing that happens. Iowa is what a lot of people don't know is farm country. It's a huge farm country. It's it's a uh, university state. Um, There's a lot of education that goes on there, a lot of innovation but it, forever, it's farm country. And guess what they do at the end of November in farm country? They fertilize. And if you're not familiar mm-hmm. with that is, I want you to go find a latrine, outdoor plumbing, and take in a big breath. Now multiply it times 100. That's fertilize in November time. Don't ever go to Iowa then. Not great.
1: That does not sound very pleasant. <laughs> <laughs>
0: So I don't know if that'll make the podcast, but it just, when I heard you were in Iowa, I <laughs> felt like I needed to do a public service announcement. Hey, um, thank you for again for joining. I don't know what I was looking for uh, probably, gosh, a year ago or so, maybe maybe less. But I've been fascinated with this idea of 3D printing. We've had guests on our show that talk about 3D printing food for NASA. We've had people on the show that specialize in 3D printing organic material and what they, what they need to do uh, it, for uh, organs and uh, maybe limbs and all just additive uh, manufacturing. It's very, been very interesting to me. And when I came across your name, it, was, it, I, it caused me to pause because it's th- your 3D printing it was a TED talk you did about 3D printing buildings. And I thought, wait a minute, how, what, 3D printings, how does that, how, how would that work? What's the scale? And so we got introduced to each other and you've agreed to come on the show. I guess I want to start with why would it occur to you, a young woman who grew up in Colorado to 3D print schools, I mean, where do we start? If somebody, if you get introduced to somebody, how do you even start that conversation
1: I usually will bring it back to the origin story. Um, So I was adopted from a rural village in China. So um, growing up, I always knew that difference of what my life could have looked like and the opportunities I was given through education. And I just knew growing up that a lot of people would take that for granted, especially um in the, the towns that I grew up in and I, I went to school. Um, So I remember when I was 15, I was talking to my dad about what can we do to address the need for schools, um, particularly um, in developing countries, because a lot of innovation typically is reserved for um, more developed countries and you'll see it in more revenue driven um. I would say, use cases rather than humanitarian um, solutions. So I asked, well, what if we 3D printed them? Um, It was still in the beginning stages at that time. Um, So I was waiting for it to to develop a bit more, especially to become more commercially available. Um, And then it it sort of leads me to today. And then we completed our first 3D printed school in Madagascar.
0: How, How old were you when you first had this conversation with your dad?
1: I was 15.
0: I don't remember having that conversation with my 15-year-old daughter. I. <laughs> so where did you learn? Because I would assert that I know a lot of people that have, um, whether they're adopted, maybe not f- as far away as China, although I do know um, some people that have been adopted from other countries, and they don't all have that sort of altruistic inclination, not, not in the scale that we're talking about here. I'm not saying they're not kind people and they don't want to help the, you know, the person to their left or to the right. But was, that, was that idea something that was nurtured in your home? Was it just sort of innate in you? Did you learn it in school or in a community endeavor? How, before you even started trying to figure out how you would do it or how you would express it, what, what do you, where do you think the origin was of that specifically?
1: That's a really good question. I think it's probably a mixture of my parents and then um, I think my inner values too. Um, I think I am very passionate about doing things the ethical way and my parents probably largely influenced that to do the right thing Um, because I think um, especially when we're surrounded by more materialistic things and social media especially um, you maybe value um, things that may not result in impacting other people. And so I think that's probably what shaped me to pursue what I'm doing now.
0: Yeah. One of the conversations it's pretty regular in my house is I try to help my kids and my community. I suppose we're not against stuff and we're not against money. We're against making them an idol. And I don't want to go like into a religious kind of thing, but just when it, when it takes more important than a, another human being. In other words, I, when somebody comes to me and says, "Look, I've here's a series of tragic circumstances, and I need economic help, or I need a place to stay. I want to be able to afford and have margin to give them economic help, or 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 fund a for building being built in ba- Madagascar." And so, if I'm if i'm if i'm you know living in a tent and i haven't been successful and i don't have the financial wherewithal to do that then i i can certainly donate my labor but i don't have any other resources to donate it doesn't sound like you're saying that's not important but it's the emphasis that we put on it i guess
1: yeah exactly i think um placing more value on things that may not matter when you have left the earth. Um, I think that's something I grappled with. Like at a younger age, I think my parents always joke around like I was a more mature child. (laughs) So I would be thinking about these existential things, like very philosophical questions about like, what are we doing here? And I felt like I really needed to do something that would, Live beyond me, because I think we're all here for a limited amount of time. Like, uh, whether you approach it from a religious standpoint or not.
0: One of the things we talk about on my podcast when we use te- when we talk about technology, I just had um, Dr. Paul Root we'll be on here. He is uh, one of the, if not the head professor, certainly one of the head professors at Emory in the area of ethics. He was the first bioethics director at NASA. He's a very, very smart, capable guy, and we had a long conversation about ethics and ethics and technology. And one of the things, I don't remember if it made it to the final cut, but one of the things we talked about was human beings, since we've had recordings of human beings, have tried to, um, there are certain things we've tried to do. One, make a marker for ourselves. Like this is my pyramid. This is my tomb. This is my, right? We want some sort of a legacy. We try to figure out how to avoid pain. We've tried to figure out how to Live forever, and in the world of ethics, it's a conversation that happens a lot now. How do I get consciousness into a silicon chip? How do I, how do I do these things? And he would say, "Well, should we live forever? Like, how you know is that a thing that that, uh, regardless of how you see the world or you imagine um, human existence, nature at least has said, you know, human beings have a we have a start and a finish because of, uh, and maybe that's the right way. I don't know. Without going too far down that road, but not a lot of people. Um, really sit there to dwell on how do I, how do I outside of myself, um, connect with people around me? It seems to, especially today, you know, every headline we have out there is, uh, we're hurting each other on a mass scale, on a small scale. I don't know. So it's pretty remarkable. I think that you even think to do something like this.
1: Well, thank you. Um, I think, um the biggest success for me would be if it inspires other people to do something, because like you were saying with the news, I think it is so negative that maybe people are discouraged to try to do something like this or to even um, create an impact on a smaller scale in their community.
0: Right. I heard somebody say once, look, you can take, you can spend a lot of time with um, spread across a you know, in little increments across a lot of people and you can make a small impact or you can invest a lot of time and money or whatever your treasure is in a person or two and change their life. And I, it sounds like what you're talking about. So why education, before we get into the technology, uh, you could have healthcare, you could, there's a water, fresh water crisis. There are a number of things. Why did you think education in your case was the way for you personally to make the biggest impact?
1: I strongly believe that education is at the root of solving all the other issues that you have just mentioned, because if people are not enabled <laughs> with the tools to address the others, then I just don't think we will be able to advance on the scale we really need to um, to tackle the larger ones.
0: You said something in one of the conversations I listened to you that of yours that really got me thinking, and um, it was... tell me if I get this right, but something like, if we can help educate certain communities, this isn't as big a deal in the West, but in certain communities around the world, we can can change the life of, for example, a young woman so that she doesn't have to be a child bride. In other words, she's got other options than just, here's the path that this village has always done, or this community has always done, I just wanna give people more options. And I feel like education is one of the ways, if not the most important way, that I can give people more options.
1: Yes, I completely agree with that. I think that with education, you have a ton more opportunities and um, you can avoid child marriages, like you had mentioned, I had said before in another um, place. um, But I think that is a huge thing we may not be aware of here in the US, for example, because that's not as normal of a thing. Um, But it is an outcome that many young girls do face. And even um, young boys, they may have to go work in the fields or mines, um, which is um, maybe a manual labor, um, job that we would maybe not have, have to face, um, for younger children here.
0: So you're, you're talking to your dad and you're saying, okay, I, I wanted, I somehow, some way I feel drawn towards the world of, uh, or of helping the world through education. Why infrastructure as opposed to curriculum or being a teacher yourself or, um, you know, higher form of education scholar, maybe, maybe becoming a senior executive, you clearly have the ability to do that. If some large corporation that could fund other things, why did you say infrastructure? That's, that's the way for me to go.
1: I thought that not a lot of other people were going to tackle it, so I thought why not like just jump in and try to do this, because I think with curriculum um, and the teachers that's definitely a component, but I think it's more subjective. But with a school, it is needed, and you can tell people um, and show people like the impact it would have, especially with what we're trying to address with overcrowding and travel distances. Because if you can build a school closer, and if you can provide more space, you'll see more students that can then learn that otherwise would not be able to because there was no school for them to learn in.
0: When when you were growing up, did you have? Um... Oasis called it a wonder wall. The band Oasis called it a wonder wall. Other people call it a dream board or a possibility board. Did you ever have a board or a or a um, binder or something that you, you're like your what ifs? What if we could do this? Or if I could change this? Or if I could do this? Did you ever grow up with anything like that, or make anything like that for yourself?
1: I don't think so. Um, that would have been cool though, to look back on and have this vision board, um, like a scrapbook. Um, but I think it just existed in my head for most of those years.
0: (laughs) I think that would be such a remarkably published piece of material. And then for other than people to talk to your parents, like, so this was Maggie at six saying this, right? Was this Maggie at 10 saying this? It's, it's so remarkable. Let's dive into the tech. I I'll be here all day. And I know we've only got uh, a limited amount of time. So you you have a conversation with your dad and as you evaluate different technologies, the idea of 3D printing, were you familiar with 3D printing? Did you see it um, occur at all? Have you had any experience before you really kind of settled on the idea with it?
1: Not really hands on. I just saw like the results of images um, in the beginning stages when I was printing walls for housing. Um, so that's how I got the idea to apply it to schools. <clears throat>
0: So you saw it printing like at a construction grade um, printer? Yes. I can't, I can't imagine the scale. How big is a pr- like? So I've seen desktop. I've seen lab um, personally and on uh, the interwebs. I have some, I've had many conversations around it, but I, I've never had a conversation with something like at scale. And this has to be pretty big. What, how, big are the, uh, how big are the buildings that you're making?
1: Um, So the one we just completed is about 70 square meters, um, I want to say. And then um, the printer itself is quite large. I think if I were to stand there, I'm barely five feet tall, it could easily be over three of me.
0: (laughs) Wow. Uh, Have you seen it in action now? Have you been out to the site and seen it um, working?
1: Yes, I was in Madagascar for almost two months, um, for this construction. And so it was really cool to finally see the vision come to life and see the printing. And then all of the local workers come together to finish
0: it. Before we get to that part. So I I'm, I'm just trying to wrap this part up. So you talk to your folks and say, look, this is, this is a dream of mine. My kids have talked to me about a lot of different dreams. In fact, my, my middle daughter, uh, right now is uh, finishing her degree in fine arts and Korean. And she wants to go to Korea and teach in Korea for a number of years. And then she's got a talent in art and she'll figure it out from there. She doesn't know she'll leverage it in art or marketing or who who knows. We're not letting that get in the way. She's uh, just leveraging her talent. And and they get adjusted. And we've had a number of conversations. You know, I'm a dad. So I'm like, well, how practical is that? What's my return on investment? I mean, that's what dads do. I want to encourage you. But I also kind of you know, we want to steer, um, we want to steer you in a direction. It's just our nature. So you have this conversation with your folks. When you come back to your friend group, your peers or whatever, did you go to, were they embracing the idea? Did you go to school to get into engineering or education? Or did you go to school at all?
1: Um, so I did start off as an engineering major, but I did not think it would help me in the long run. So I switched to, um, business and I went to the lead school of business at CU Boulder and I did business management there. Um, and I felt like it was definitely helpful to learn the basics, but, um, I learned I think more with the real world applications, um, beyond like the case studies that we would study, um, in class. Um, I think for my peers, I didn't really talk to them about it. Honestly, <laughs> it was still in my head. Um, but my parents were always supportive, especially my dad. Like, I think that he was definitely one of the biggest cheerleaders, um, cause there were moments of like self-doubt along the way, but, um, I don't think they would ever want to like discourage me because they knew that I would be very determined and eventually pull it off.
0: Speaking of Boulder, I've been there a number of times. I've got to ski there at Eldora, such a pretty part of the country. Um, such a pretty place. I, I don't know why your folks would want to take you to Iowa, but that's a conversation for another day because (laughs) that's such a, that's God's country up there. When you, when you see that I'm trying to imagine the, uh, the building when the printer gets going, does it as, as it's how, how does it actually build the building? Like I'm, I'm imagining a board game piece or an organ or whatever that's being built and It's this very additive sort of structured process. Is the building just a big square building? Is there a unique design? How does this, what's the design and how does it work with the printer?
1: So for the design, I was inspired by beehives. So it's um, an octagon shape for the, the singular hut that we just constructed. And then the larger vision will be to have them connecting in a honeycomb shape um, for multiple students and class, um, multiple class sizes. Um, and then for how the printer works, it sort of looks like, um I would say, a square from an aerial point of view. And then one of the sides will go from the ground up and look sort of like icing a cake. And then the layers um, are constructed um, through a hose. So it's extruded through the nozzle and um, the mixture that um, is extruded is a cement proprietary mixture. So it is um, harder and and then it it dries fairly quickly um, after the first cycle around.
0: Did you design this or did you find did you did you say, look, I've got an idea and I just need to go find the tech and other people to join me with this idea? So did you design the printer? Or did you find somebody who did the printer? Did you design the concrete mix and the the shape of the school? Or did you go find people and say, Here's my dream, help me to realize it and they you guys spitballed ideas and you put these different things together?
1: I had to bring the people together. Um, So for the design part, I found these wonderful um, two men named Yash and Bruno, and they work at a studio called Defining Humanity. And they did this design for me pro bono because I was just trying to (laughs) get it off the ground. And then um, for the printing, um, we partnered with 14 Trees and they have constructed houses in Malawi and they're doing another project in Kenya. So they were familiar already with the, the climate, I would say, and then also transportation, but they hadn't worked in Madagascar yet. So we were both figuring it out, um, just overcoming obstacles and such.
0: I can just imagine that. And forgive me, I, I don't mean to be obnoxious, but I'm, this almost feels like a, a skit, from SNL or or HBO Max or something where you've got a scene, you've got Josh and Bruno or 14 trees sitting across from the, almost like a movie pitch. And you've got Maggie who comes in and says, here's the deal. What? I want to print buildings. Okay. And I want to do it with a not-for-profit. Okay. Okay. And I want to do it in remote rural parts of the world. Okay, Madagascar. <laughs> I just the look on their faces. So when you're when you're talking to Josh and Bruno, or you're talking to 14 Trees, like I'm sure they hear ideas regularly. How, what was that? What was that experience like?
1: I think. Um... I would say 99% of the reactions were just like that. Like people thought I was very crazy, but, um, (laughs) but Yash and Bruno were actually very supportive of it. Um, it's a quite a funny story how we met. So, um, one of their friends, Elaine, um, she is from China. Somehow, um, they I got um, an article on us, um, and then it sort of went viral on their social media. But I would not know, because I don't think we have access to their social media. <laughs> <there>. <laughs> um, and then she had sent that article to Yash, and then he got Bruno involved, and then it sort of materialized from there.
0: <laughs> are Yash and Bruno based here in the States, or are they someplace else?
1: Um, yes. So Bruno is in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, I believe. And then, um, Yash is in Chicago.
0: How cool is that, that an adopted baby grows up by beautiful people helped with beautiful pe- people raising her. First of all, your birth parents had to look, I, we, we need something better for our daughter. And then this circumstance happens. Um, I, some people just believe it's the universe. I happen to believe there's a, a somebody who intervenes, but that's neither here nor there. And so here you get placed with this couple. I mean, it's a remarkable story because it's not a common story. They 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 help grow you, and I'm not trying to over dramatize this, but they help <laughs> you know shelter and grow, and you grow up with this curiosity and this interest. And then you live in an age where. An article can go viral, which would have meant a whole nother thing 50 years ago or 10 years ago for that matter, but goes viral. And somebody in another country shares with a couple people um, that are disconnected and yet connected. And then you guys have a conversation and they say, I'm in. It seems like nobody would write a movie like that. That seems too ridiculous, you know.
1: Yeah. Where is my Hallmark? Movie? <laughs> yeah. It is quite crazy. I don't know how he pulled it off, especially in the middle of the pandemic. I think that was sort of crazy too. It is sort of like a telenovela. Um, and they, I don't think we've ever met in person too. So that's the crazy part. They were just designing this for me. And um, I built this school and we still haven't met in person yet. So.
0: But you know what, that man, I'll tell you, I love it because I I'm a big fan of tech. I'm a big fan of the platforms we build. I love social media when it works well. I love it. I think it's one of the best things to help human beings, but like a lot of tools, it can also cause great harm. I'm not saying that's the people who make it, but it's just, it's a tool, you know, and there's a lot of instances of that in the world. So when it works well to do this, we should celebrate. It's a beautiful thing. But I've got to ask, why Madagascar? Nothing against the Madagascar people, but I've heard... It's it's not a country that rolls off the tongue for an endeavor like this. I'm I'm imagining so many possibilities, but why Madagascar?
1: It for me it really comes down to the people. Um, for international development, I think a lot of charities do have maybe a bad track record of going into countries, and maybe they're not really accepted or needed there for what they have to offer. Um, But for Madagascar, we had such a warm welcome, like the people were very excited and really proud to have this school built there. Um, And also they see the potential of the development and what we could really help to unlock for a lot of the young people there and their futures. but yeah, for sure, it does sound a bit obscure. <laughs> when I was trying to fundraise, people just didn't know it existed um, on the map. And um, it is probably the farthest country I could have picked. Um, if you sort of look at the globe, I it, it's sort of crazy. It took three flights to get there.
0: Yeah, it's not um it's not easy. I I understand it's a beautiful place. It's you know, it's a big giant island off of the uh eastern coast of uh Africa. But let me ask you when you what's the logistics like? I mean, our whole world is dealing with supply chain and challenges and now we're talking about taking a, a um a fairly complex piece of equipment and you've do you do you box it up here in the states? and, as, and I'm, I'm assuming you assemble it there, or is it manufactured there? I don't know that Madagascar is known for its great manufacturing capabilities, not picking on them, but it's one of the reasons why you're going there to support the people is they don't have the infrastructure like a lot of the world. So do you, you box it up here and you get it there? It, how, how is the government and the community thinking about how do we support this endeavor? I mean, let, let's start there, I guess, maybe before we get into the logistics. What was the response of the government and the locals? Because my experience has been, whatever your intentions are, we've tried this in so many countries in the Caribbean and in Africa and all over the world, heck, here in the States. And there's a lot of conversation, but there's not always, there's enthusiasm by the people who want to make it happen. But sometimes the politics or the uh, community leaders, it just doesn't manifest. I think it's the g- most generous I could be. So when you work at the organization and the communities in Madagascar, were they embracing of this idea or do you have to talk them into it? What's been your experience?
1: Uh, the communities I've interacted with have been very um, embracing of it. Um, and they are very excited, I think, of what's um We are offering with innovation and also not only the school buildings, but I'm hoping that we can create jobs too to support the economy, because I think there's a huge opportunity to upskill workers, create like technician training programs, even because a lot of people there, um, for example, my friend Ella who manages the Madagascar team there, she says like she's 28 and um, a lot of people don't even have a full-time job by then um, because there's just not those opportunities available. Um, But on the government side, I think that definitely is more challenging, not that they don't want um, the development in their country, but it's just very bureaucratic and maybe not, uh, the processes aren't as streamlined to get a decision. So for example, um, we are trying to formalize a partnership with the ministry of education and mm. it's just very difficult to get, um, communication on a fast timeframe. Um, so I think that would be the main hindrances that we would encounter.
0: I know some folks over at world vision that are in the water well, um, project for them. And when I've talked to them, they said, the most success we have is when, by community, whatever wherever the well's going in, and I believe this is true. I've got another friend um, with another water well project in uh, South America, but this one happens to be in Africa. When the local villages and magistrates get involved and they can... One, they make their wells in such a way that the locals can repair it. They don't, they don't have to rely on the organization for repairing. So the design's very, very simple. It's very effective. Um, the local people build it. They're, they're, the team comes out to help supervise it because they've got the expertise. But part of the goal is, or the goal, is how do I train local people to maintain it. It gives them a job. It gives them the expertise. It gives them resiliency and redundancy. They don't have to rely on somebody else to take care of it. And the materials are almost exclusively sourced, if not right there, they're, they're within um, a manageable distance. So it might not be that ground zero, but within a few, you know, a couple dozen kilometers. They don't have to leave the country, for example, or cross um, some crazy distance. And what they find then is when they come back 10 years later, that well's still going and people are employed and it's completely changed the community um, around them. I, I, I got to imagine that that's part of the heart of what your goal is as you build this um, education or these uh, facilities for education, that how do we employ as many people that can build it, maintain it, operate it, teach in it, get, um, get taught in it.
1: Yeah, I would say that sums it up quite well. I think that um, for me, I think that a nonprofit should be essentially... The goal of a nonprofit should be to not exist because you have solved this problem. So you shouldn't be in there like seeing how long um, maybe you could stay. You should maybe be planning ahead for how long it will take for you to not be needed at all and make sure that you're equipping the community members or whatever issue that you're trying to solve with the skills to make it sustain for the long haul.
0: So we were talking about getting the machines, um, the printers to uh, a site. Um, do they start in the U.S. or do you source them from somewhere else?
1: Oh, so 14 Trees, are a partner for the pilot, um, they're headquartered in Malawi. So we cargo shipped it from there. Um, so just um, a small journey across the Mozambique channel, I believe. Um, but that's also up to... All of the supply chain issues, I think you had mentioned before, like you don't know if it's going to arrive on time and such.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's a conversation for another day. We've, we've talked about it a number of times on on this show, but I, I don't want to spend my time on it here, but it I, it's all being impacted. I'm glad to hear that it doesn't have to come from half a world away, just uh, you know, a few hundred miles away, it sounds like. So once it arrives on site, how many buildings can this machine you know, from start to finish, it takes this much time to set it up. Then it takes this much time, assuming we have the material and the labor, it takes this much time to create a standard building, uh, maybe not an entire campus, but a standard building. And then it takes this time much time to move it to the next location. How much time is that, would you imagine?
1: So I think about three weeks for the construction is what I would estimate for one building. But um, you do need to take into account the foundation slab. You do need to place that at least a month before because the printer is quite heavy. So you want to make sure that it doesn't like um, squish the foundation. And then um, before that, I think it really depends where the Um, printer is coming from to factor in transportation. And then the setup should be done in like um, a day or two. Um, So that shouldn't take up too much time. Um, And then hopefully, as we were able to streamline the process, you would see those construction times reducing even further.
0: A friend of mine is in the prefab uh, home business. And he said, once building the home isn't that much time. Usually it is, you know, somebody decides this is the model of home I want and they build the home in their case. Uh, I may need to follow up and see if they're doing 3D printing yet, but they, they build a home in a big warehouse. So this isn't like manufactured trailers. This is a, you could make it hurricane cat five proof. How like these are really robust structures. But he said, the big thing is first, we got to get the permitting done. Where are we going to build it? And what are the rules and regulations of that area? We go ahead and get the foundation started Then we build the home over here in a warehouse, and then we ship it, in their case, on trucks so that when we get there, the foundation's cured, permitting's done, and all we have to do is assemble it. This sounds similar to that in that some some group has gone through some geological survey and said, here's the right spot for it to go so it can support the weight of this thing and it doesn't impact the environment negatively. We get it permitted. We get the foundation laid and poured and cured. And about the, in a perfect world, I suppose, about the time that's done, your machine shows up and then it just makes a building.
1: Yes, um, I think that would be a good way to summarize it. Um, And then when the printer is there, then it it prints it on site um, rather than shipping it in. Because that was something we had initially considered the prefab model, but I just felt like you wouldn't be including the community and you really need that support um, and to create jobs that way. And I think when you're shipping in things, um, you are really missing out on those other opportunities to employ people.
0: Sure. And if you, you get there, I don't know, if, have you ever been to Ikea? Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. I used to love Ikea. I don't love it anymore. But that's, Ikea don't pick on me. You get home and when Ikea goes well, it's fantastic. Super simple to assemble. But when you get there and you turn you're two thirds of the way through that shelf and you're missing a bracket and you've got to go back to the Ikea warehouse just to get a bracket or call somebody, when it's all in the package, it's great. So to our point about the prefab facility, if you if upon unpacking it's all there, it's great. But if you've got to go back to 14 trees and say, hey, I'm missing a bracket, that's probably no bueno, as opposed to having the machine where you oversimplified, I'm sure, you just push your <laughs> 3D printing app. And it just, as long as you're putting the source material in the hose, it's running its uh, pattern and printing it out you probably don't have to worry about missing, uh, missing your brackets, <laughs> just fire and forget.
1: There are definitely parts that you do need for the printer itself to operate, but mm-hmm. maybe not as many as like an Ikea prefab situation. <laughs>
0: yeah. So how many people does it take? Like I'm imagining uh, right down the, my street, I've got a couple houses being uh, built. And I see this army of people, the framers, the painters, the the roofer, like everybody. This just, it's a big ant pile. Whereas with 3D printing, in my experience, not in making homes, but in other places, you sort of put the, you load the pattern that you want and away it goes. You have a few people supervising. And I got to imagine doing a building, it's a little bit more complex, but is it the same number of people as on a traditional construction site or is it, um, what's the labor size look like?
1: Yeah. Um, I would estimate for ours, um, it was about 20, but that includes the technicians and then also the local workers we employed. Um, I think that um, I have heard like concerns in the US for 3D printing um, and how it takes away jobs. And that may make sense um, if there are labor shortages, but um, how we're employing it in Madagascar and hopefully other countries is that we would find like a hybrid design. So the walls are printed. And then everything else, like the roof door windows are locally sourced um, and then eventually training local people to become the technicians. So everybody um, is essentially native and you're giving them opportunities that way.
0: How do you imagine? Do you tie the building into the grid or do you power it with uh, solar or renewable as you as you're imagining this self-sustained facility? How have you and your partners imagined this is going to be deployed?
1: Um, So the vision is to have solar powered um, schools um, since Madagascar gets quite a bit of sunshine. And the next location, I believe, receives 350 days of sunshine on the west coast of Madagascar. So I think it's ideal for that. And then in terms of Internet, that is an obstacle I foresee. I think it would be great if things like Starlink were more readily available um, to get remote areas on the grid. Um, But even in more urban locations, um, the Internet connectivity was quite a challenge.
0: And it will be till they figure that out. That's somebody else's. You're building the buildings. Let somebody else figure out how to get the Internet connectivity. My uh, kids and I or one of my daughters went with us. We went on a quick trip to uh, Central Florida not long ago where I live in Atlanta. It's not far um, it's no Iowa, but it's pretty. We just have the Smoky Mountains and two oceans right around the corner. But we're—I um, should stop picking on Iowa. Iowa's been great to my family. I love Iowa. I, it reminds me of one day. One day I was in the hospital, or the hospital, the airport, and I saw this guy, and he was selling flowers. And I was like, "What are you trying to achieve?" And he said, "I'm trying to achieve the state of perfect nothingness." I was like, "Iowa, I could tell you how to get there." <laughs> um, they ran out of self-service where we were at in the middle of Florida, and um, my daughter thought it was the end of the world. I was like, you know, you can read a book. You can, we have taught ourselves, human beings have taught ourselves for millennia without um, internet. I do believe it's, it to be connected gives you more options, but hopefully that's not a primary example. How many people can be accommodated in one of the schools?
1: Um, So for the pilot, the one hut could accommodate 30 students. But um, of course, if we change the designs, um, it will be unique to each community because we need input on the design aspect there. Um, So they might be larger or or smaller. Um, And then if we're able to connect them so it shares a wall in the honeycomb campus configuration, you can accommodate um, even more students.
0: Now that you've your, your your pilot is off. You've been to Madagascar. You've spent some time there. As, as you look back, when you get ready to do the next ones, what are some of the things that you've said, we need to double down on this and this one, on this area, uh, we need to improve on?
1: Mm, I would say planning ahead for the things that could go wrong. <laughs> um, I think... <laughs> Just making sure, like, you're like, oh, we got to plan ahead, like worst case scenario with like Murphy's Law and all of that. I think with a pilot, you really get everything, you know, and you're like, no, I have to do this differently. Um, Maybe allow more time here. Um, Maybe these people won't show up on time. Like, that's another thing I found, like cultural differences. Over here, we may show up on time someone else in Madagascar, they may show up like an hour and a half later. So right. you just need to know when um, coordinating between like construction crews and all of that.
0: Uh, when we've been to, my wife and I like to um, scuba and and um, get down to the Caribbean when we can. And one of the things we've learned down there is there's island time. Yes. Even at the airport, we've discovered, wait a minute, I, Pretty sure the FAA has pretty strict regulations on how planes come and go, but they just kind of shrug their shoulders. You know, it's island time. We'll 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 get it when we get it. Just relax. Just relax. Was it? So did you experience Madagascar time? No, no disrespect. I mean, it's just a big cultural difference. My friends have just moved to Spain, and they're learning Valencia time. It is very different than how we do things here in the states.
1: Yes, that is what Ella told me, I had to get used to the Madagascar time. And she would tell me just go with the flow. And I'm over here. I'm a very type A impatient person. So I'd be like, No, I I can't live on this Madagascar time. We have to get moving. Like we got to stay on track.
0: How did you how did you manage it? Did you learn any tools to just relax or just sit there and give Ella a hard time and try to figure out how to (laughs) relax?
1: Um, I would say I <laughs> try to teach her um, how to be more on top of other people um, with scheduling. So um, <laughs> I would tell her you got to message people like not to the point of micromanaging, but you have to remind people or else um, they will forget about it. Um, so a funny story is that Facebook messenger was a huge way that I would communicate with people like Facebook is seems to be on its way out over here, but in Madagascar, it's very popular for people to stay in touch. Um, so that's how, um, I even stay in touch with the students there because, um, they message me photos in front of the school, which is really cute.
0: What's it been like now that it's built and And the local folks, not just you and not just 14 Trees or Yash and Bruno or your parents, like you guys have been engaged in this for a while, but you showed up some period of time ago to a group of people and say, look, I've got an idea and I think it will help you. And, um, you know, that's happened all over the world and people don't always keep their promises or the result isn't exactly what people imagine now that it's been deployed and they can they were part of the process and they can touch it and they can experience it what's the feedback that you've gotten from them
1: i think the the main feedback has been how proud they are of it um and I just think it's really heartwarming because they really were sharing this dream with me because they were along the journey. Um, so a lot of the messages I got would be, um, I'm so proud of you, Maggie. And um, they're just really happy that it finally came to life. And I just think I was really touched by that because i um, even a lot of them I may have not met before, but they really talk about things. So the whole community knows. And so it was just really an incredible experience to finally meet them in person.
0: I could imagine you go to help people. And sometimes when we go to help people, it's not received well. Either either we didn't account for the different things or something just doesn't work right or or whatever it is. Or people don't appreciate it. But every now and then when it's appreciated, genuinely appreciated and you step back um, and you see, I helped with this community. You know, we don't want to make an idol of ourselves any more than we want to make an idol of money or stuff. But I helped with this community and some luck, a little perseverance and a little bit of teaching our, our buddies how to stay on t- top of people through Facebook Messenger man, I got to affect these people's lives. Whatever else happens from today in a positive way, I got to help change somebody's life. Did you, when you, when you thought about that, when you actually saw it in place and the, and the tears and the sweat and the whatever, and there's, as you know, or if you don't know, I'm sure you know, <laughs> there's more ahead. Because um, sometimes it has to sustain you, that emotion, that experience. What was that? What was that? like? Was it was it as gratifying as you imagined? Or had you not imagined it before this?
1: I think I didn't know what to expect. And it didn't really sink in for a while. I just was like, wow, I can't believe it's finally completed. Um, And I think um, maybe it hit me when I came back. And then the students would send me photos of them like next to the school. I think that um, was when I just thought like, oh, wow, I can't believe like this is something like that people can really see the impact of and are excited to continue sharing about.
0: Right. How do you, since you're a not-for-profit, how do you, um, one, how do you raise funding? And two, I guess another way to think about it or, or another way I would think about it is how do you measure success? Is it how many buildings we get built? How many Facebook likes we get? How much... Revenue we raise, how many machines we're deploying, how when you, when you talk to people about funding and you bring this big idea of um, impacting the world in the way that you've described here, beyond just that initial capturing their imagination, how do you demonstrate value for them and this is what we're going to go do and here's how we can measure our performance.
1: Yeah. So for um, fundraising, I've mainly raised from individual donors. Um, So essentially they shouldn't expect anything in return like a a VC would. Um, um, And they've been really wonderful in believing in this vision. So to tie into how I pitch it to them, um, I usually will lay out um, where we could go and like how many people it can serve. Um, But to make it more tangible, it would be like how many schools we could potentially build, or how many students' lives, but also, like, not just the student, but like their family and then the children they may have in the future as well.
0: Right. Have you caught a lot of media attention?
1: Um, I would say we have been lucky to get the press. Um, I think BBC recently um, released their video on the construction. So they had the exclusive on it. And so I'm hoping we can leverage that to reach more people. But we'll see. I think a lot of times it doesn't translate to direct donations, but maybe like a company or a donor may see us and say, oh, wow, this is something I could get behind.
0: Right. Right. How do you, do, you, do you imagine scaling it? I mean, what's, what's next? You've got the pilot off the ground. Do you, do you have a personal goal of I want to get this many more or I want to get so many done in a certain amount of time? What is it that you and your team are thinking about?
1: So um, we would love to continue scaling throughout Madagascar. We estimate a need for about 22,000. So as much of that as we can accomplish would be incredible. And then um, long-term goals would be great to scale to other countries because I even get requests um, um, for other countries around the world, like not even on the African continent, but even in Asia and Latin America. So there's a need. And a desire to have schools. Um, It's just a matter of, can we raise the funds and scale it to be able to serve them?
0: (laughs) Do you ever sit back and say, I am a CEO. When the doors are shut, nobody's around. (laughs) I'm a CEO of a construction company and just flex. Do you ever think about that? That, uh, Because this is an uncommon thing.
1: I think it's funny to bring up. I think maybe I'm very hard on myself. Um people usually tell me I'm like too modest and and I need to maybe rest on my laurels, but I am <laughs> I think I put a lot of pressure on myself and um I don't really take the time to like see what has been accomplished, but I do need to get better at that um in order to like celebrate it with other people.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's worth celebrating, don't you think?
1: Yes. um, (laughs) I just have to find a way to like stop and be like, wow, look at what has been done.
0: (laughs) Right. Well, I mean, that's, you know, my experience is um, a lot of people are good at it, but I think they, they had to work at it. People tend, in my experience, tend to either not have the ability to easily rest. Or they don't have the ability to really work, like really work. You are obviously, um, it's just innate to you. It's just natural to you. I want to work. I want to accomplish when I go to bed. I feel like on what, however you measure your list, I've got these things done and that's awesome. But if you don't have the ability, I mean, I I think even God on occasion said, all right, I'm going to rest. I'm just, whatever your personal belief system is, you know what? Ah, I'm just going to sit back here and chill for a moment and just enjoy, not uh, just enjoy the things that I have around me. Or um, they never really get started. They just kind of, they're always resting and that, you know, neither of those extremes seems like it works. So obviously it's a skill, but I think it's pretty remarkable that um, not not just this idea that you've had and your desire, people have those things all the time, but that you've, it's just through force of will and your uh, idea and your vision that you've got it here. what How do you when you wrestle because we we all have this, I believe, and I have um three daughters that are similar in age to you. And sometimes our conversations, many times our conversations aren't so much about their dreams, it's the it's the voices that come to them uh, usually internally, not always, but usually internally that um almost accuse them like you're a fraud or you're not good enough or it's don't rest you got more to do or you know whatever and it seems like it's an important conversation for us to have if you don't mind having it because the world's talking about this stuff today i mean the mental health and um women in particular that's my experience with three daughters and a wife of 30 something years um it's a conversation I have regularly. So when you do you have a community group that you talk with? Do you have um, a support system? How do you manage that emotion and those thoughts for yourself?
1: I think that's something I'm still trying to figure out. I think Um, For me, I think it's hard to find people who can relate on this journey because I think it's quite rare um, to be young and to be a woman and also within the nonprofit space to have a leadership position. Um, So um, I tend to talk to my dad about things like that because um, he has a good objective view on it. But how I really, um, I think, deal with it the best is I look towards other women I think a good example would be Cheryl Sandberg. I had watched her TED Talk a long time ago. I think it was like, why the world has too few women leaders. And I thought, oh, wow, that's really inspiring to see other people going through this experience and maybe having a position that others um, are typically scared to go after, whether that be like stereotypes or even um. I think the tendency for women to not believe in themselves and to maybe hold themselves back and the typical societal view of maybe women should not be ambitious um, really holds people back, I think, from going after what they are passionate about and for holding those leadership positions. So I think um, coming across that talk at a younger age also helped shape um, where I wanted to go and to see myself more as an equal and to not let like my age or gender prevent me from achieving things.
0: Well, I don't know who you're measuring yourself against, but I would say there's probably not a lot of equals you're accelerating and excelling i'm sure you've heard that before it's pretty remarkable one of the things in my own personal journey is when i when i've tried to white knuckle through i love the inspirational ted talks and conversations i've been to many conferences and conventions and i and i love those things but one of those things one of those things that they don't have or one of the things that they don't have is you're sitting in a row and so people are disseminating information or you're sitting in front of a screen and you're, you're getting this information. But community, in my experience, is built in circles. You're built in small, tight groups. Like, who are those people? Even if they don't have every experience that I do, maybe they're not a, uh, a leader of a, um, of a not-for-profit, but it, but it's somebody... You know, somebody like your dad, but, but some other people that can come into this small trusted circle that, man, I can be really authentic with, right? I'm not just, I'm not just reading it or I'm not just hearing it. They know me. They know me. They know my strengths. They know when I'm quiet and I'm smiling. Am I really smiling? Um, am I really sad or am I just blowing off steam? They know how to sit me down and make me rest, like really rest and not kind of rest. You know, I will sometimes do that. I'll look like I'm resting. I'm not resting. My mind's going a million miles an hour. I think we're designed as human beings that we need those moments of just, and I don't mean in the middle of harvest time. You're in the middle of a harvest (laughs) time now, but there are times, right? Even that example of people who harvest or fisher people. They take time to mend the nets and sit and relax. Or once the harvest is in, or we break down don't you agree
1: yeah i i would agree with that i think that's the importance of really developing relationships um not only on the business side but personally um so when you were talking about all of that like people who really know you um and whether things are wrong and, and if you're okay would be emma my best friend like i've known her since first grade um really? i ha- i have a funny story how we met so I love it. <laughs> Um, I remember we were at lunch and she asked me to eat a grape and I was like, no. (laughs) And that just started off the whole friendship, I guess, but um, we'll always refer to the grape story. And I think it's nice to have somebody there through all your life stages because she was there, um, before like people knew about what, um, the vision was and, um, she really doesn't treat me any differently. I'm just myself and she'll tell me when <laughs> like things are not okay. And I think you need that, um, in a personal, um, group or with relationships for people to tell you the truth.
0: Completely agree. I just hosted a woman. I'm sure you've you've got a million things to read, but if you get a chance, there's a really cool book called The Thank You Note know Project, and it's by a woman named Nancy Davis Coe, K H O, and she's out in the Oakland area, I believe. She's a she's an author and um, entrepreneur, and other things. And Nancy, in her book and and in our conversation, she talked about she had a cup. She has a couple friends. Um, her best friend, she met, I'm pretty sure the first day of college and she's more my age. So we're wait, wait, probably about as long as you've known Emma, we've known, you know, our best friends for longer, but her best friend, um, and Nancy cracks me up. She said, I'm kind of a big deal. And, and, um, but her friend is one of those people that calls her on her stuff when she's wrong, but also backs her up, um, when, Everybody else is saying, hey, maybe you're off here. She's in her corner, uh, but she's not primarily interested in being nice. She's very interested in being kind, and there's a difference between nice. Nice is courteous and polite and whatever, even though you may be thinking something else. Kind is that person who will tell you that's probably not your best color. You might not want (laughs) to wear that or do that, or you may need to go apologize to somebody that you really don't think you need to apologize to or whatever. And so I think that's probably of all the things we've talked about today. One of the most valuable things you've got besides your folks, there is somebody like an Emma that can, and hopefully you get to add to that collection that really know you because this is a remarkable story. I can't wait to see and hear what more you do with, um, with this project.
1: Well, thank you. Um, I think when you were saying that too, I was thinking like mentors are really important as well. Um, So I think of like Mike, who is my mentor, like someone who is older, who can maybe watch out um, so you don't make similar mistakes and also tell you the honest feedback that you may not want to hear, but it'll make you better in the long run.
0: (laughs) I completely agree. So what's next in the near term for Thinking Huts and for Maggie? I
1: think... I will probably work on planning for the next project, which would be the Honeycomb campus. And then I think we're planning to do our first in-person gala in October. Um, just trying to raise awareness, I think, is what I realized the biggest thing is the public relations aspect of how many people can know about your story and vision, otherwise you may just be undiscovered. Um, I think it's cool, like people like you who share people's stories, because a lot of times like people are doing great work, like in their communities, and you'll just never know.
0: Well, Maggie, I've enjoyed this conversation. I, from the moment I heard you first present at um, TEDxCU, I thought it was a beautiful, compelling story. And honestly, I, I wanted to research to find out if it was legit. There's a lot of cynicism (laughs) in the world. And it's very legit. You're a very legit person. And I really appreciate you coming on today. If people want to learn more about you and your project or the upcoming gala, how can they do that?
1: I think the best way would be our website, which is thinkinghuts.org. And I just want to thank you for having me and for reaching out.
0: My great pleasure. And if you've also enjoyed the conversation, please like, share, subscribe, and comment. We'll see you next time, everybody, on the QTS Experience. Take care.